Welcome to the Getting Off Course podcast. I'm your host, Josh Waldron, and this is episode number 10. I consider this to be a small milestone for the podcast, and I want to thank you for tuning in. I'm joined today by Barat Kanodia, the founder of a company called Veristrat. Barat is a business valuation expert who has valued companies like Uber, Airbnb, DoorDash, GE, and Tesla. We're going to talk some golf and then get into the nitty gritty of business valuations. Barat, thanks for joining me today. Josh, thank you for having me. And uh, I want to say you had the perfect pronunciation of my name. So that tells me you've done your homework. And congratulations on um, your 10th uh, episode. It goes by fast, and uh, you won't be surprised when you'll be doing your 100th episode. So keep on. Yeah, we'll see. Thanks for joining me. So I'm excited to dive into the world of business valuations, but I want to start with a bit of golf. So I know that you play. How often do you get a chance to play golf? Uh, <laughs> uh, um, I, I used to play uh, far more. Uh, in fact, a funny story. I used to live in Wisconsin, and um, in, in Wisconsin, uh, as you can imagine, it's very cold. But golf was one of those getaways, right? So I used to play fifty rounds a year, um, which to some people is like the holy grail. It's like fifty rounds a year, and fifty rounds a year in Wisconsin—that's a lot of golf. Sure. Um, and when I moved to California, I thought, my God, I'm moving to California. I'm going to play 100 rounds a year. It's been 13 years I moved to California. I have probably played maybe 50 rounds all cumulative over the 13 years um, because there's so much else to do. Yeah. Um, and plus, you know, got married and now have kids. So that's, that's a bit of a distraction, but it's more of an excuse than anything. Was there any point, especially when you were playing consistently, that you considered yourself to be like an above average golfer? Oh, yeah. Just like anything, right? It's all about practice. The more you do, the better you get at it. Um, you know, in golf, there's always that valley of death or the chasm, if you will. If you start playing golf, you know, after a while, you go through that valley of death where you're like, oh, my God, I suck so bad. I should just sell my clubs or burn them. Um, and then, but you keep playing, you keep playing. And after a few weeks, a few months, you come out of it. Um, at my best, if you will, I was approaching a, becoming a bogey golfer, I would say. Yeah. I was, I was becoming consistent enough that I would shoot like, you know, maybe just over a bogey or something. So that was, that was, that was good for my ego. What drew you to the sport originally, or why did you keep playing? Um, you know, uh, the bosses in my company, they would play golf and I wanted to be in with the cool crowd. So I said, Hey, I'll pick up golf. And my boss one time suggested you should pick up golf. So I did. Um, and it was kind of fun. Yeah. It seems Painful. like it's a, a real, <laughs> right. A real connection for people in the business world is the golf course. I truly do believe the best way to get to know somebody is to go golf with them. It doesn't matter if they know how to golf or they don't. Um, you just, I mean, four hours on a golf course, no cell phone, nothing, just you on a sport where you, your competition is against you. 
um, best way to get to know somebody. Yeah. So my assumption would be that you're a numbers data kind of guy. Would that be accurate? I, uh, I can fake my way through numbers. Let's say that. Okay. So do you think like having an analytical mind is helpful for a golf game or harmful? Oh, God, no. God, no. If I could just stop thinking and play golf, I'd be a, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have, I'd be an amazing golfer, but you can't stop thinking. You know, if you, if I stop thinking, oh God, I'd be amazing. You know, I, I tend to agree with you on this, and I think that there are differing opinions, but I think the more analytical you are, the more you can get into your own head on some of this stuff, and that makes golf a particularly challenging sport. Yeah, I mean, most people are their own worst enemies. Like, you know, I was playing with a... I was at a, at a, at a golf outing, uh, and, I, and you know, our foursome was me and my buddy and then another two guys they had paired us with the good guys and one of them you know he was really good he was an insurance sales guy and you know he was very suave and smooth after the sixth hole i mean you know his true colors started to come out he started to talk to himself he started yelling swearing not to everybody and not to anybody but to, to himself oh yeah like, just calm the fuck down like come on it's all right yep. it's just a game have another beer you know, um, one of my early podcast interviews was with a guy named Wayne Petrie, and Wayne used to work for me at the golf course that I ran. Definitely a better golfer than me, but when the wheels came off, he would start doing all that stuff, the talking to himself, and it was hilarious. Like, I, I just loved going with him for that reason. Yeah. I mean, talking to yourself is funny. So it's kind of fun to play golf with people who cuss and who are by them who, who are themselves on the course you just don't want to play golf with somebody who's gonna cuss at every shot yeah that's my rule cussing great it's fun just let yourself be you know be yourself you know but not at every shot that's not fun for anybody sure i'm with you all right, let's shift gears here and talk about your area of expertise. That's kind of the goal of this podcast. We have some connection to the sport of golf, and then we hone in on the guest's area of expertise. So you're the founder and the chief appraiser for a company called Veristrat. In a quick sentence or two, tell me what your company does. We help um, founders, business owners, venture capitalists, and investors um, understand valuations. Um, founders and owners um, are always looking to raise capital, debt, or equity, and they need to know what their companies are worth. Um, or venture capitalists and investors, before they cut those checks, they need to know what those companies are worth. And we tell them what those companies are worth. How did you get into this line of work? Purely by accident. Um, you know, they say best things in life happen to you when you least expect them. And that's exactly what happened. I graduated from college and uh, I didn't want anything to do with engineering. I was bored of it. I hated it. Um, and I wanted a job in finance. But who in their right mind would give a 21-year-old kid with a mechanical engineering degree a job in finance? Well, I found one guy. All I needed was one. That's right. And he became my boss. Um, so that's how we got started. Fun. 
So when you were starting out, how did you find clients? Um, I didn't have to. Uh, you know, I started to work for a company and, you know, it was one of the largest valuation companies in the world. Okay. Um, so that was a good start. But once I went off on my own, um, I find clients two ways. Um, one was through the people I know through referrals, right? That's always the best source. Mm -hmm. um, and second is um, the content that I create in my YouTube channel and uh, my writing at Inc. Magazine and guesting and podcasts, the content I create that attracts uh, people to uh, my website and to me. How, so when did you transition to being on your own? Like how many years did you stay with your original boss before you did your own thing? 10 years. Okay. Were there any like important lessons that you learned in those early years that you were able to apply later? Oh yeah. I mean, I was most fortunate. I mean, you know, uh, most people in my world, Josh, they silo themselves and they would say that, you know, they would say something like, oh, I only appraise commercial real estate for, say, tax purposes. So they silo themselves into a little something and they say, oh, that's better. Well, it's not better. The only reason they say that is because that's all they do. That's all they know. Um, I, on the other hand, um, have had the opportunities to appraise all kinds of interesting, weird assets for all kinds of purposes. Um, you know, I started out doing machinery and equipment. They liked my work. Then I was asked to do real estate. They liked my work. Then they asked me to do companies. Uh, they liked my work. And then they sent me the, to the real dark side, valuing startups. Um, <laughs> they liked my work there. So that's where I ended up. All right. You know, I read a book a couple of years ago called Range. And it makes the case for not siloing yourself. Like it's better to have a broad range of skill sets rather than just be an expert on one. And that would seem to be the case even for your appraisals. Like if you just do one thing that really limits both what you know and what you can learn and even who you can work for, it sounds like you've taken it kind of full spectrum. I mean, that's the fun part of my, by my job. I mean, you know, the kind of assets I have appraised, nobody would even would know where to start or they'd be afraid to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Yeah. I mean, who in their right mind would appraise the Brooklyn Bridge or the Grand Central Station, New York, or Atlanta Airport? I mean, where do you even begin? Oddball things are far more fun. So do you see business valuations as an art or a science? It is very much a combination. Um, and the blend really depends on the asset that you're appraising. For example, if you're appraising a early stage startup, 80, 90% of it is art and only 10, 20% is science. Okay. If you're appraising a large public company, then 80% is science, 10, 20% is art. So it depends on what kind of asset you're appraising. Yeah. So let's say, because this makes sense to me, your explanation makes sense. Let's pick, you know, important 
American Company A. It's a name that everyone knows. Let's just say it's Home Depot, all right? If you take five business valuation experts and they all come up with a number, will that number be pretty close or pretty consistent? It will never be the same number. Okay. If it is, those guys are colluding. Sure. <laughs> uh, and it shouldn't be the same number. Even though assumptions are exactly the same, you give everybody the same set of facts mm -hmm. and they will all come up with different numbers. Um, and that's just the way it is because valuation at the crux of it is, Josh, is an opinion. And everybody has a different opinion or can have a different opinion based on the same set of facts. Yeah. Um, and that's just the nature of the beast. So I am one of the few lucky SOBs who's paid for his opinion. Um, you know, and just because I have done it so many times, um, my opinion is better than most people's. Yeah. Yeah. With experience comes wisdom. That makes sense. So I know this is a, this is like business valuation for dummies sort of question. And it might not even be a fair question to ask you because there's such a broad range of factors, but give me like a quick breakdown of the steps that going to valuing a business. Oh, sure. That's not a big deal. That's a, it's a fair question. Um, there are three ways to value anything. Right? And I, and I, and the reason I have been successful in my world or I have appraised all kinds of weird things is because I never lose sight of the fundamentals and the fundamental building blocks in my world are one is the income approach you're looking at what cash flow a business might bring you over the next two three five ten years and you present value those cash flows right? fairly simple that's one way of doing yep. it the second way of doing it is called a sales or a comparison approach where similar to how they appraise houses, right? Say your house is worth, say, $100, and you think your house is worth $100, and your neighbor's house just sold for $120, and your house is exactly the same. So mm -hmm. you can work with the assumption that your house is probably worth $120 now. Um, or the third way of looking at anything is, hey, what will it cost me to rebuild or replace or recreate this house uh, from the ground up. It's called the cost approach. Um, and all other approaches might be a derivative or a combination of these three. But okay. these three are, let's call them like the primary colors, the red, blue, and white of valuations. All other colors are derivative from these. Yeah, that's really helpful. So in the introduction, I referenced your valuations of some pretty big companies. If you're willing to share, I'd be interested in knowing what's the biggest company that you valued. Or Airbnb, um, Upwork. Yeah, I mean, you know, these are, I mean, I've, I've valued uh, weird things like the Golden Gate Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge or um, state of Hawaii, state of New York. Um, Aliaskan pipeline. So when you get a big project, so you're dealing with a big company, what are the kind of challenges that you need to confront? 
I know like if you were if you were appraising a, a mom and pop store, that'd probably be a pretty quick job for you. What are some of the challenges you have to deal with when it's a big or a large scale company? The large scale company, the um, the biggest challenge is access to the story. When I'm working with a um, small or mid-sized company, I have direct access to the founder or the owner. And you're working with a large-scale company like Uber, well, I don't get to talk to the CEO. Um, most times I'm dealing with the CFO, which is fine, but I need to ensure that the narrative that the CFO is sharing with me is the same narrative that the CEO or the investor is thinking about. Hmm. Um, because when a company becomes that big, um, I need to ensure that the narrative that they're putting out in the market is the same narrative that goes in my report. Um, and more than the narrative, I need to understand the why behind the narrative, which is missing from most uh, analyst reports that you might hear from Wall Street. Um, once I get to the why behind the narrative, everything else falls into place. Yeah. Does this, you know, when you do this kind of stuff, I'd imagine you have some stocks. Like, does it help you to know some of the financials, like in a detailed sort of way? Do you make any decisions on your own investments based on what you're able to ascertain? I am, uh, since I'm a third-party independent provider, I would love to take um, a cut, you know, get compensated with their RSUs or options. Um, but uh, that will be unethical. Uh, I'm not allowed to do that. Maybe you're hearing my question wrong, or maybe I phrased it wrong. So let's say you do a valuation in an industry. Let's say it's, you know, like ride sharing. Mm -hmm. Does that give you information in your mind that then you can go up, apply, like whether this is a good industry to invest in or a bad industry? Like, does your... Does your wisdom have other applications? Yes. Um, my job definitely keeps my fingers on the pulse. Yeah. As in what is coming through the pipes of the venture capitalists. And whatever venture capitalists are investing in, that's going to be the next big thing usually. For example, back in the day, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, cloud was a big thing. Everybody was talking about cloud, cloud, cloud. Then in the uh, 2015, 16, everybody was talking about blockchain. Ooh, blockchain. That's the best thing. It's going to change everything. You know, then... 2018, 19, everybody wanted to talk about SaaS because SaaS is the thing that's going to change the world. It's going to change our life. <laughs> sure. You know, um, so I just get to learn the buzzwords um, each time. And I know what's, you know, like now EV is the thing, right? Ooh, EV. Have you invested in EV? Everybody's investing in EV. Why not? Let's invest in EV. Yeah. Fun. So I know that you enjoy startup valuations, or at least that's a world you find yourself in a lot. Why are you drawn to this category of valuations? You know, somebody recently asked me, 
how old would you be if you could be any age? And my answer was 18. Why? Not because I was an adult, because at that time I was in college. And college is just hope. And I enjoy startups because it's the college of the business world. It's the mm -hmm. hope. You're dealing with young entrepreneurs and founders with hopes and dreams. And you get to coach them and you get to learn from them. I learn from them more than I anything. I love their enthusiasm and their dreams and their zeal, their ambition. Um, it's fun. Yeah, fun is good. If you were choosing to invest in a startup, what sort of factors or attributes would you be looking for, either in the idea or the founder themselves? Like, what are some key things to pay attention to? In fact, that I'm uh, my speech is about exactly that. Um, it's not the numbers. I couldn't give a shit about numbers. Um, I look for, here's a sneak peek uh, to my speech. I look for three things, ETC, which is, is their idea extraordinary, like crazy? You got to go for swing for the fences, not just, you know, oh, I want to set up vending machines. No. Um, second, do they have a following? Even just one person, five people, 10 people, do they have any kind of following? And third is, is the founder consistent? Is she coming into work daily? Is she putting in the work daily? You know, intensity is good, but consistency is the key to greatness. So I look for three things, ETC. For the listeners out there, um, Barat is... He's referencing a TEDx speech that he'll be doing coming up on um, how to build a billion-dollar startup. So keep your eyes peeled for that. So you've referenced this a couple of times in our conversation. Valuing a business is one thing, but you've also valued some rather unique assets, like the New York City subway system. What's the strangest asset that you've valued? Somebody asked me that question yesterday. Um, they beat me to it. No, but no, I, I, no, but I, I've done some weird assets, so it's fair to ask me this question. Most people would say, "Oh, I've just appraised this company." Um, some of the weird things I've appraised are: I have appraised all the forests owned by the Department of Interior. That's pretty crazy. Now imagine how many millions of acres of forests they own. I have appraised those forests. I had to go and count those trees. <laughs> no. Uh, no, that was that was more of an extrapolation exercise. Sure, sure. Why why would someone want a non-traditional asset like that valuated? Is it for insurance purposes or why? That's a good question. So most people might think that you need a valuation for some kind of a deal or a transaction. Um, and that is only a subset of why you might need a valuation. Valuations could also be needed for, as you said, insurance or for accounting. Um, so for example, if somebody invests $100 in an asset, they need to show on their books what that $100 is worth five years from now or 20 years from now. 
even if they're not selling it, they still need to show it on the books at market value. Yeah. Um, so those kind of exercises are also very important or for tax purposes, right? Gotcha. So back to golf, how would you develop a business valuation for something like a golf course, which doesn't seem to me to be like a traditional business? Um, well, you got to look at two things. One is, am I appraising the real estate with the business as a business part of the business? Or am I just appraising the course as a business, excluding the real estate? There are two ways of doing it. Assuming, let's say I am appraising the business as the golf course and not including the real estate. Then it's just another um, just business. You're looking at the cash flow that the business brings in, and what other similar businesses with similar cash flows might be worth, um, or what might it take to build that course today if you were given like barren land um, and rebuild it from scratch, and you know give give it some time for ramping up six months a year, you know, marketing costs or development costs, all that. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it seems complicated. But if you really break it down um, and try to assemble it brick by brick, it's fairly straightforward. In your opinion, let's assume you're going all in on real estate and building a golf course. Do you think owning a golf course would be a wise business investment? Um, yes and no. Biggest expense for golf course is water and people. Um, if you have good access to water, cheap access to water, I mean, um, and you have a way to get good people to help you, or if you have a way to get cheaper labor, or if you've figured out a way to, you know, efficiently automate some of the processes, which are difficult on a golf course because it's very manual. Yeah. Um, or if you have other businesses that are um, uh, amalgamated with the golf course, that's why you many times see a golf course, um, uh, you know, next to a hotel or, um, you know, uh, it, 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 next to a subdivision because people are trying to um, leverage resources or, um, labor in multiple ways so that the um, overhead is not as high. So golf courses with a high overhead, like say Pebble Beach, well, I mean, those are unique type of properties. I mean, people don't mind paying 400 or $600 around whatever it is nowadays. Yeah. Um, but even then, sometimes it's difficult. I mean, if you want to buy land, prime real estate, develop land, um, and then build a golf course, I mean, you are really looking at a very risky investment. Um, unless you have a trick up your sleeve, you know, you you know the president of the PGA and you can get a tour there in the next four years or something. That's a whole different ballgame. It does seem like there's, you know, we heard for many years that golf courses were closing, 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 closing. But now there seems to be a trend of building and in some cases, brand new courses. But, you know, in your wisdom, you kind of hit on something there. It does seem like they're either built around or there's going to be a residential development around them or they are resort destinations. And, you know, the water thing isn't something that I thought about. But when I think of the places that they're being built, they are 
generally speaking, in places where I think water's easier to access. I know, like, you know, building in California wouldn't be as practical as building in your former home of Wisconsin, where there's plenty of water. Building a golf course is similar to buying a ranch. You know, if you have to buy a ranch, pay the mortgage on it, and then work on it, and then try to make money on it, that's almost impossible now. But if you inherited a ranch, mm -hmm. right, hopefully, you know, the inheritance tax is not crazy. You figured it out. <laughs> how to sure. um, then, and you don't have a mortgage payment. Well, you might be able to some make some money on it. Uh, but building a golf course from scratch, well, unless you got a trick up your sleeve, you know, you're building a Four Seasons with it or something, um, it's a different ball game. I mean, golf courses, it's beautiful landscaping, but it takes work. There might be some people listening who own a business and are looking to get out of their business. I'm, I think I saw a stat on your website, like maybe 80% of business owners are maybe looking to exit in four to six years or something like that. That could be yeah. off. If someone's looking to maximize the value of their business, what are some practical steps that they can take? Two things. And I bring it down to two things because I like to keep it simple. Now, there are all kinds of gurus and coaches out there. You know, they'll say, I've got a three-step process. I've got a five-step process. I've got a 14-step process. I'm like, Ugh. I've spoken to some of them. And I get confused. Maybe I'm just not that smart. Um, I say do two things and you would have maximized the value of the business. Now, again, I'm a simpleton. So maybe other of those things, the seven step process is a derivative of these two steps just stretched out more. But at the core of it, it really is two things. One is you got to think everything from a potential buyer's perspective, not your customer, not your client, but a buyer of your business, right? And what do buyers look for? Buyers want consistent cash flow. What does that mean? Buyers want to be able to enjoy the money that business is bringing, which means that you don't want a business where you got to go find a new customer on a daily basis. A business that collects checks of payments from the same customers again and again and again. That's a good business. So in a golf course business, for example, um, if you have to attract a new golfer on a weekly basis, that's a problem. Um, and that's why they have these deals and these memberships and, you know, the play 10 rounds and get one free of these because they want to attract the same people again and again. You don't have to go out and hunt. Um, so that's one thing. You want consistent cash flow or recurring revenue from the same customer again and again. Second thing, you don't want to do anything to enjoy that cash flow. You want to sit on your butt and just enjoy that cash flow. Now, how do you do that? You want to make your business run on almost autopilot. Mm -hmm. Now, then people tell me that, no, my business can't run on autopilot. My business needs me. Yeah, I get it. You know, not every business can be automated. Not every business can run on autopilot. And that's the holy grail, right? That's the 100% grade. So start asking your question, what part of your business can be automated? What part of your business can be um, outsourced or what part of your business can be run by um, other people whom you might hire, not you personally sitting there. 
um, you know, could you outsource um, um, green maintenance of greens? Could you outsource, uh, you know, the kitchen or the restaurant? Um, you know, things that you don't have to go there every day and be sitting on your desk. Um, you know, that could be hiring people, you know, which becomes expensive depending on the business you're in or automating, you know, nowadays there are so many software and SaaS software where you pay $10 a month, 50 bucks a month, and it does the thing for you. You just got to set it up. Of course, nothing is easy. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, if you can make the business run on autopilot, um, that's key. So two things, consistent or recurring cash flow and running the business on autopilot. Very good. So we're going to head into a lightning round in a moment, but I've heard that you're a fan of my guy, Teddy Roosevelt. Why is Roosevelt high on your list of historical figures? Wait, where did you find that out? I listened to a podcast that you did with, um, I, I couldn't tell you the source, but you referenced Teddy Roosevelt. I do. I, I am a big fan of TR. Um, he was a man who did things. You know, he didn't sat around and debate oh, what we should do or could do. He said, God damn it, let's just do it. And yeah. then we'll, he, he, he would say, this is the right thing to do. And I think this is the right thing to do. And let's do it. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I think that's a good way to go. You know, if, you, if you've got the right intention and if you've done your work and you think this is the right way to go, you know, do it. He, he, would, he would say in every moment of decision, um, there is a, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The second best thing you can do is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you could do is nothing. You know, I was a high school history teacher for six years. And I taught advanced placement U.S. history. That was one of the courses I taught. And I always left my opinions on different people out of the classroom. Like it just, here's the information. Here are the different debates that we can have. The one exception would be Teddy Roosevelt. Because I just felt like, first, he was a man of action, which I appreciated. But then and you hit on this, the idea that when he did stuff, he did it because he believed it was the right thing to do. And he had some flaws, like every human being, but he was pretty consistent in that. He was trying to do what was best for the American public or what was right for the time. And I, that's just something that I appreciate. So I thought it was pretty cool that you were a fan as well. Thanks for weighing in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, in fact, uh, going to Sagamore Hill is on my bucket list. You know, I'd like to learn more about him. In fact, I'm right now, oh, it's downstairs in my living room. I'm reading a book about Teddy Roosevelt right now. It's it's called The Trial of the Century, you know. Okay. The Century, you know, it's not the OJ trial. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it was, you know, Teddy was, you know, a renegade, right? He always, you know, was, uh, he questioned authority. And the party bosses, um, the Republican Party, um, they were sort of bullies. Well, Teddy was no, no less of a bully himself. Um, and he accused one of the party bosses of um, uh, being bully uh, and bullying the um, uh, uh, congressmen and others uh, uh, at the New York legislature. 
and the party boss, uh, this is after he um, stepped down as president, and the party boss uh, sued uh, Roosevelt for libel. Um, and, you know, Roosevelt being Roosevelt, he said, you know, oh, fuck you. I'm not, I'm not taking this. Um, so Roosevelt didn't even hire an attorney. He defended himself and he won. Crazy. <laughs> Love it. All right. Let's, let's wrap things up with a 10 question lightning round. You ready for this? You got me started on Roosevelt. So sorry, I got you distracted. I know, but I can tell that you care about him. And that's, that just makes me happy. All right, give me the name of an American company that you think is particularly well-run. Costco. I think I'd agree with you. Not because I have the same information as you, but I'm a fan. No, I, I only think whenever I go to Costco, I don't run into too many assholes there. Um, the employees, they care. They want to help you. And I think they have a good product. Yeah. Is there a golf company that you're drawn to? Um, not really. I'm not, I'm not a big connoisseur of fancy golf things. I just try to keep my head above water. Sure. Do you have any business books or podcasts that you are particularly fond of? Um, yeah, I mean, one business book, in fact, I'm reading right now. It's fantastic. It's called um, First, Break All the Rules. I don't know who the author is. Um, mm. Fantastic book. Um, and what I like about some books is, you know, I don't like books where they are sort of sermonish in nature. Oh, Josh, you ought to do this. Oh, Josh, you got to lose weight. Oh, Josh, you got to do this. Fuck you. You know, I, I don't need another person telling me what I should be doing. Um, I appreciate books that are no bullshit and they tell you the how to. Mm-hmm. You know, if I tell you, Josh, when you go to China, speak Chinese. Well, yeah, I know that. But, Josh, this is how you speak Chinese. Well, that actually helps. So this book is well written. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. When it comes to startups, have you noticed any common attributes? Well, we already talked about this one, so I'm going to skip this one. Let's, let's shift into California mode for our last four or five questions. So you're in the San Francisco area, correct? Yes. What's the best part about living in that area? Oh, I love living here. I, I wasn't born here, but I'm dying here. Um, if there's any place to be shelter in place is Northern California. I mean, there's so much to do here. We're never going to run out of things. There's a reason why this area is so expensive because it's just amazing. What's a downside? I know every place you can see all the pros and I can tell that you do, but is there a downside to living in that area? Of course, there's traffic. It's expensive, you know, but there's a reason it's supply and demand. Would you rather own the 49ers or the Giants? I would say 49ers. Great choice. And not because of anything. I just think football is a better franchise than baseball long-term. Yeah, I mean, I know the, the Denver Broncos are going to be up for sale here soon, or maybe they already are. And the Broncos, really, they're a mediocre team year after year, kind of middle of the pack. 
but they're saying that whatever price that's going to be, it's going to be high, like insanely high. Yeah, I've done an episode on my YouTube channel about sports teams. If you get a chance, look at it. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that one. Sports team is a rich man's endeavor. Um, you know, you don't make money on sports teams. You make money when you sell a sports team. So you bleed money, you hemorrhage money, you hemorrhage money, you hemorrhage money. And when you sell, you might make money. <laughs> Give me one must-visit restaurant in the San Francisco area. Uh, oh, God, there's so many. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, House of Nanking. It's a, uh, it, it's a Chinese restaurant, uh, Hunan style in Chinatown, very simple, down home. Um, and the owner, Peter, he's always there. He's like, he's like, he's like a thousand years old, uh, <laughs> you know, but he shows up and he sort of looks at you and he says, you're going to have this. Okay. You're going to have this. And, you know, then somebody goes, no, I want, you know, wonton soup. No. You don't want wonton soup. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, so he tells you what to eat, and it's pretty good. So nobody questions him. Yeah, love it. All right, last question for you. We didn't get into this, but I know you have some uh, cryptocurrency thoughts. Do you have a favorite cryptocurrency? Not really. I mean, cryptocurrency is just a new asset class, kind of like how email was, right, 20 years ago, right? If so if you have a Hotmail account or a Yahoo account or who cares, right? As long as you have an email. Um, so cryptocurrency or NFTs as a new asset class is here to stay. Um, individual cryptocurrencies, they might go in and out of popularity. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks for joining me today. Is there anything that you would like to plug? No, thank you again for having me. And, um, you know, it was a great conversation. Go TR. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out gettingoffcourse.com to see the show notes or to listen to past episodes. You can also send me an email at gettingoffcourse at gmail.com. If you have the time, please rate, review, and subscribe. Getting Off Course is presented by Par 3 Near Me. Visit par3nearme.com to find a Par 3 or executive golf course near you.